When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. All right, Andrew. I've got a question for you. Is there a moment where you've been out in Mother Nature and the environment has unexpectedly laid bare your deep insignificance? Like a like a moment where you're unintentionally a part of a very dynamic system? I feel like I've been relatively lucky in my experiences with the natural world in that I've never been really blindsided by the weather. Well, I've definitely been caught above tree line in the alpine when weather has come in quickly and then you're suddenly in a whiteout and you can't see your hand in front of your face but usually the weather has moved through relatively quickly and we've been able to get out of there without much of an issue what about you for me i haven't had it happen that often like i've i've intentionally entered into situations where i know it's going to be like pretty chaotic but there's been a few times where I think I've been caught off guard. It's always happened with water. Funny enough, I'd say it like has happened in a canoe where you're like, a canoe, really? I remember one time in particular when Teplin was two, we went and did the Green River, this very mellow section. And I went with a bunch of friends that didn't have kids. We had kids. We were going to like do this climbing trip. We were going to try to put up first ascents. And we like, I mean, we brought like drill and a bolts and like tons of gear. And the first day I was like totally freaked out just with the wind and the size of the water. All of a sudden there's like waves and we're like paddling through these waves and water's coming into the boat. And Becca's trying to bail water out of this thing and I've, I think there's like a kid trying to sleep on the you know floor of the canoe with water sloshing around and I'm like this is just it's too much and I just I remember that's probably as like nervous or sort of out of control as I've, I think I've really ever felt you just you felt small in and on that trip I also would say is that the rope for climbing never came out of the bag and and I think it actually changed the whole trip changed my perspective I wouldn't say that I didn't have respect for the power of nature, but I think it made me respect it even more. Andrew, you've got a story. Yeah. 
We are going to visit the Rio Grande, or as it's known in Mexico, the Rio Bravo. The Rio Grande is the fourth largest river in North America, and because of that, it's been harnessed for agriculture, for drinking water, so much so that only 20% of the water makes it to the ocean. It also serves as an actual boundary between Mexico and the United States for about a thousand miles and can come with fences and walls. But even with all of this, it remains wild. Today, we have a story about borders, boundaries, and a fight for survival. Sometimes the natural world is just going to do what it wants to do. And no amount of experience or best laid plans will make a difference. I'm Andrew Burton. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. So Chandra Brown has worked her entire career as a professional river guide, writer, and educator. She lives just outside Missoula with her dog and longtime partner. As a guide, she works on rivers from the glacial waters of Alaska to the depths of the Grand Canyon and has paddled on rivers as far away as Ecuador. I would say that my passions, the things that mean the most to me, are art, education, and and rivers. In addition to being a professional guide, Chandra created and helps run the Free Flow Institute, which hosts outdoor writing workshops, often on river trips. On these adventures, Chandra doesn't simply show people the wonders of the natural world. She also creates the emotional and intellectual space for clients to meditate and reflect on the terrain they're in. In October of 2021, Chandra was coming to the end of her guiding season. She had just wrapped up a 16-day trip down the Grand Canyon and only had one river trip left before heading home to Missoula. By Chandra's own admission, she was tired after numerous summer rafting expeditions, and she only had 48 hours between when she got off the Grand and was due to push off on her next trip. It would be a writer's workshop on the Rio Grande River, canoeing with seven clients. They were coming from a lot of different places. One was working on her PhD. Another one was a Chicana woman from Texas who was working on stories about place. Another one had been a client of mine in Grand Canyon, and she brought a friend of hers from the Olympic Peninsula. There's kind of a wide variety of folks. With Chandra would be two other professional river guides, her longtime mentor and colleague, Bob Gray, whose nickname is Bobski, and Sierra Ward. Bobski is a grizzled, gray-haired veteran river guide who spends half his time in the Texan community of Terlingua and the other half of his time in Alaska. The third river guide, Sierra, also lives in the small Texan community of Terlingua. In addition to the three river guides would be the professional writer Francisco Cantu, who goes by Paco, and the musician and artist Karima Walker. We build it as a writing workshop, but also sort of a a border studies workshop. For Chandra, this would be only her second time on the Rio Grande. It's a river that stands in sharp contrast to the Grand Canyon. 
The Rio Grande is special because it forms the actual border between two countries. So it is a very fraught waterway for obvious reasons. It also is so heavily managed that a lot of the native fish populations, a lot of the, the biological systems within that river corridor are either decimated or obsolete or threatened. And it is sort of a poster child for what happens to a desert river when its flow regime is altered to this, to this extent. The stretch of the Rio Grande the group would be canoeing down is situated on the southern border of Big Bend National Park and passes through Boquillas Canyon. Chandra's trip would start in the Chihuahuan Desert, a vast expanse of gravelly, sandy land that stretches across the U.S.-Mexico border and is filled with creosote bushes, agave plants, mesquite, and willow trees, and then enters the serenity of Boquillas Canyon. It's this beautiful limestone canyon that's sort of an anomaly in this big expanse of, of desert scrubland. It's a, a beautiful place to sort of see an abundance of life in an otherwise stark and desiccated landscape. And I've only seen the Rio Grande at, at low water, like low, low water. And at that flow, the water is sort of a, takes on sort of a bluish greenish hue. A lot of the reason for that beautiful color is runoff from agricultural uh, properties. And so the, there's a lot of algae in the river. It doesn't feel necessarily clean. You know, it's warm, it's tepid, and you see evidence of cows everywhere. Given how heavily the river has been affected by decades of various policy decisions, the landscape invited the group to consider how humans shape and affect the natural world. These are the types of questions Paco, the writing guide, was hoping to have the group ponder as they spent time in the canyon. Paco is a former U.S. Border Patrol agent who wrote a book about his time in the Border Patrol titled The Line Becomes a River. The Washington Post named it one of the best books of the year in 2018. He and Karima, the artist, who is also Paco's partner, are based in Arizona, and he said comparing the U.S. border where he lives in Arizona with Boquillas Canyon and Big Bend set the tone for him on the trip. In the Arizona borderlands, as in most of the borderlands, this is a heavily militarized space. And my first trip to Big Bend was this really incredible experience because all of that falls away, even though you are on the U.S.-Mexico border. And when I say that, like, all of that f falls away, I mean, you know, like, in a very literal sense, there's almost no crossing traffic, there's almost no foot traffic, there's almost no smuggling activity throughout the Big Bend region. And, you know, a lot of those reasons are geographical, because it's such an isolated terrain, you know, there's no big highways or transit routes through that region. To be clear, Paco isn't suggesting that no people are crossing into the United States near Big Bend. He's speaking comparatively in contrast to the rest of the border. In any comparative terms, when you look at like El Paso, Arizona, San Diego, uh, the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, Big Bend, the Border Patrol sector, for decades, it has been, you know, the least trafficked of all the Border Patrol sectors along the southern border. And so I'm mentioning all this because I think the approach to the class, for me, there was a little bit of 
of a concern because we would be bringing students to this place that is a national park. It's a place of natural beauty and splendor that attracts people for all of those reasons. But it's a place that in one way, it's like a false vision of what it's like on the U.S.-Mexico border. And in another way, it's like a very true vision and a much older vision of what it is like on the U.S.-Mexico border. And I think it really illustrates the false constructions of, of border, right? Like you get the idea of the landscape as this unbroken, interconnected place because there's none of those hulking, rusted fences or or other infrastructure. So I think that was like a concern is how do we present this place in a way and present this trip in a way that represents that duality to the people who are coming on the trip? Before the trip had begun, Paco asked participants to read about the stretch of river they would be traveling down. There were texts about national parks and like the construction of the narratives of wilderness, the sort of like mythologies of wilderness in the United States. There were texts that were like very specific to the border, thinking about the geography and the psychogeography of the borderlands with respect to the fraught histories of militarization and enforcement. Karima was particularly mindful of a surveillance camera set up looking at the river right as the group pushed off from shore and started their journey. And that camera looks out at that part of the river and apparently that camera video is like live streaming to El Paso. It felt so strikingly invasive. It felt very existential. It was just like sucking the landscape into itself. With all of these topics swirling in their heads, the group put on the river under an unseasonably warm Texan sun. You put on the river, and one thing that makes this trip unique is the lack of speed. It moves so slowly. You float beneath this super oppressive sun that even in October is absolutely devastating to your skin and your energy levels. And the water is warm, so there's not much of an opportunity to refresh yourself. And we just paddled a lot to get to our first camp. River gauge records show that even by the standards for this stretch of river, it really was crawling at a tepid pace. The low range of what is considered normal is about 200 cubic feet per second, or CFS. Yet on this trip, the average flow was a mere 60 CFS. It meant things were slow, bumpy, and rocky. You know, Bobski or Sierra would paddle up in front to kind of scout out where a viable passage might be around a corner because you can picture it, all the water flows to the outside of the bend, but the outside of the bend is also sort of suffocated by these, with these plants. And, and it's not like floating under a willow tree or something soft and accommodating like that. This mesquite has claws and the cane is like, they create these hard stocks that hurt really bad and, and have the potential to like capsize a canoe and that's wildly inconvenient. The paddling wasn't easy either, as the members of the group were put into two-person canoes, which required instantaneous teamwork. Well, I think tandem things 
don't set us up for success generally. If, if you're orienting them to the boat for the first time, you say the person in the back is the person that has the control. They're in charge of the steering. The person in the front is effectively the motor and they do what the person in the back says. And so right there from the outset, you're setting up interpersonal chaos. The guides would often have to jump out of their own boats to help participants. We'd hop out of our boats and, you know, hold onto the back of their canoes and get them pointed in the direction that they need to go and then set them free and hope for the best. And it's wild because these aren't whitewater rapids. It's just corners. They're, they were just corners and sections of river where the water was so channelized and so low that, that we needed a lot of help. On top of these physical challenges, the group could see the signs of migrants crossing the river. You pass by the Mexican village of Boquillas. You kind of see evidence of people crossing the river, little tunnels through the, the cane and the mesquite where folks have, have come across, you know, from one side to the other. I asked Chandra about what it felt like to see the signs of people crossing and how she thought about that in contrast to what they were doing on the river. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think you'd have to be absolutely unaware to avoid that experience of sort of doubting what you're doing there. You're recreating, you're learning, but mostly you're recreating because you live in America and you have the resources to do so. And the evidence is all around you of this injustice and the these inequities. And you become acutely aware of the fact that this border is absolutely porous. It is constructed as a boundary, as a political boundary. You're hard pressed to avoid those feelings that come with that awareness, with that realization that you are you're floating for fun down this river that means something wholly different to this population just to the south of the waterway. As the group floated downstream, they talked about what they were seeing, processing the dissonance. Eventually, they made it to their first camp. And so that first day, we paddled down to our, our first camp, which is tucked right inside the, the very mouth of the canyon, right? So the very entrance to the to Boquillas Canyon, where suddenly late in the day, the limestone walls, they provide this tremendous shade that you've been pining for all day, and then suddenly you're there. Despite the difficulties of the day, the camp was vividly beautiful. The sunset burned a deep orange-red, contrasting with the milky turquoise of the water. The temperature finally relented, allowing for folks to relax and take a refreshing dip in the current. Shadows grew long. Once the crew was settled, Karima asked individuals to close their eyes and key in on a specific sound in the environment, allowing them to be grounded and present. Prior to the trip, each participant was asked to submit a piece of their own writing. The plan was for the group to then read each person's writing and talk through different pieces each day. And here lay a new challenge. A lot of people are writing about pretty intimate experiences or questions. And so you have to create an environment where like people feel comfortable not only sharing 
that, but also hearing feedback from other people. And I think making sure that that feedback feels like it's about the writing and not about someone's life life decisions or something like that is, is really important. And I've never been in a workshop where you're essentially like traveling and working together. So that was really unique and, and really special. I think we had a lot of really great and unique synergy because of that. In the days that followed, the group slowly found their rhythm. Water levels stayed low, the sun stayed oppressively hot, and two-person canoeing stayed frustratingly difficult. And yet, things began to ease. We spent a lot of time talking about writing, talking about the literature that defined this place. And Paco and Karima did a great job of sort of grounding us in that place and leading us through these exercises that really encouraged the participants to become as settled as they could in that place, moving at the pace of the river, responding to the river when necessary, but then also just just slowing down, slowing way down. And that's that's a lot of the goal is just to just encourage people to be with the place and to be with the river. So these first few days were good. As the group floated deeper into the canyon, the idea of political borders began to disappear. Boquillas Canyon towered overhead, the walls reaching upwards of 1,200 feet tall. There were no civilizations on either side of the river. On both sides of the border, they explored side canyons where tributary creeks called arroyos cascaded into the main canyon. Wild burrows roamed the shores, and soft-shell turtles could be seen on the banks of the river. The crew freely slept on both sides of the river, crossing back and forth between the United States and Mexico with little thought. Technically, the border of the United States and Mexico lay under their canoes in the deepest part of the river, known as the Thalweg. That legal boundary had been officially agreed upon in 1848, through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo at the end of the Mexican-American War. But creating a legal boundary via a natural part of the world has led to numerous land disputes between the U.S. and Mexico over the past 175 years as the river has naturally shifted and moved. And yet, the group of canoers paid little mind to which country they were in, instead freely flowing in the current, getting to know each other better, and appreciating what each person brought to the group. Karima noticed that the social, emotional, and artistic barriers between the group also started to break down. You know, it's like we're out there in the sun, we're rowing all day. We're like, okay, this is taking so much longer than it's supposed to. But then, like, we all get together in a circle and folks were really tender with each other and people were really thoughtful. And this is why Chandra was such an amazing leader is that she's like seen it all basically and was like, maybe you've noticed it's really hard to drop into journaling. Like maybe you've noticed that you'd rather just sleep. Maybe you've noticed that you'd rather have some more wine instead of taking time to be present to what's happening. And we found that to be true for ourselves also because it, it really is kind of this overwhelming experience. On the fifth day of the trip, the group exited the canyon, entering back into the hot, flat scrub brush of the Chihuahuan Desert. And I remember we were paddling out of the canyon, sort of leaving that canyon behind. And Nancy turned to me and she said, I don't want to leave the canyon. And I did some river guidey thing and was just like, well, Nancy, all the water moves us in the direction for a reason. And we've got to, it would be counterproductive to fight this momentum or some something like that. But of course, no one wanted to leave the canyon. It was hot as hell. 
once we got out of there and we had two more days and there was no relief in the site. I remember checking, checking the forecast and on the GPS and just feeling quite, quite beat down by the heat. There was no, no storm, no rain, no cloud cover forecast. Chandra estimates that temperatures on the river where there was no shade were in the 90s. The group decided to get off the river early and escape the heat as best they could. We set it up so that we could have a very short last day. So we wanted to be within striking distance of the takeout. And so Bobski and Sierra settled on a destination that that fifth day of a place called Adams Ranch. And this is on river left on the on the Texas side of the river. And we got there early afternoon and people were so happy, so relieved to be out of their boats because that meant that you could hide from that afternoon sun. You could curl up in the shade of a small tree or you could take your inflatable sleeping pad, which river people will know is called a, a Paco pad. They were hiking their Paco pads upstream getting in the river and floating downstream on those Paco pads. That afternoon was the first time where I remember seeing people play in and with the river. It was like the whole vibe changed. And it could have been because we knew we, we only had one night left together, one night out on the river. Or it could have been the fact that it just felt good there. It felt like a good place. There was a perfect swimming hole. There was a perfect beach with shade. And there was this little tiny riffle, which is this modicum of current that made it really fun to float downstream on those pocket pads. As the day wore on, they set up their last camp of the trip. Chandra, Bobski, and Sierra positioned the kitchen under the shade of a tree right at the river's edge. Nearby, slightly farther back from the river, Paco and Karima set up a circle of chairs for dinner and discussion. The ground was cracked and bone dry. A braid of the river had once flowed through here, but not in a very long time. Nearby, a dirt berm rose to an old, dusty desert road cut through the scrub brush. Participants set up their tents scattered throughout the area, some higher up on the berm, others down on the crack to earth. We had a really nice last evening together. We had burritos for dinner. We drank the last of our Lone Star lagers, and there was some boxed wine that some of the, the ladies had. And we had a, uh, a participant on that trip who was a dance teacher, and she, after dinner, taught us some bachata moves. So it was pretty perfect. And by that point, the group had definitely cohered. The group felt, I think rightfully so, that they had overcome some adversity. And that adversity, as we know, in, you know, in outdoor, shared outdoor experiences is what really brings a group together, right? Like galvanizes those bonds. The heat and wine and dancing all swirled together, bringing night upon the group. The great expanse of Texan sky stretched out openly in 360 degrees. Stars brimming with twinkling white light began to pierce through the dusk. And then... It happened so fast that these canvases of clouds rolled in and just obscured the emerging stars. And suddenly the sky was dark 
it seemed like there were these two storms that converged literally right above our camp. They just crashed together. And the surface of the desert landscape is so hard that when the rain falls with that much force from the sky above, it bounces back. And so it feels like the rain is coming at you from, from two directions. And then the lightning was so intense. It was the most intense desert lightning storm that I've ever been in. You know, we talked about how you should count a certain number of seconds and maybe, you know, to determine how close it is. And the results of our counting weren't good. The lightning made sort of a halo in the sky above us. And so eventually people scurried away to their tents to wait out the rainstorm. The lightning chilled out and then it just rained and rained and rained for probably a couple hours. And it felt good, right? Because it was suddenly like so refreshing. And, you know, I had this totally naive thought and in hindsight is so ignorant, but I was like, oh, well, at least people will be a little cooler tonight. Maybe they'll sleep better. When we come back, Mother Nature shows up flipping the trip on its head. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. While the clients drifted towards sleep, Bobski, Sierra, and Chandra watched the water levels closely, fearing a surge in the water from the storm. Bobski and Sierra and I sort of stood by the stood by the river for a, a while. You know, we moved our kitchen just a little ways up from the from the river. We pulled the canoes up, but the water level wasn't changing. The little tent city that they built was probably 30, 40, maybe even 50 feet from the from the water's edge. And, you know, by the time we decided to peel off and try to get some sleep, our kitchen was probably six or seven feet from the water's edge. And we felt pretty good about that. Of course, you can never be confident, fully confident in what the river is going to do. But we felt pretty good about where we were. And so Bobski decided to sleep near the canoes down by the kitchen just to kind of keep the river close by. And, and then he'd be there if the water started to rise and he could holler and, and we could kind of jump into action if need be. But we didn't, we didn't expect that. I remember crawling in my tent, just soaked. I put on some, some dry shorts, took out my contacts and kind of listened to the squealing from the tents around me. And it was sweet. They were all kind of checking on each other. Like, hey, Tina, are you okay? And she'd squeal back and great. It was clear that the rainstorm itself was like super exciting. The lightning was super exciting. 
for these folks. And it was exciting for us too. It was, it was beautiful. So I was laying there and I was reading, I had taken a book from the trip library and I was trying to read the book and fell asleep. I was exhausted. I was so tired. I remember my body, when I hit my sleeping bag, I was just, I felt so good to lay down. And I was so grateful to be in my tent. <laughs> I swear I had just fallen asleep, but it must have been, I can't, I can't pretend to know how much time had passed, but I woke up to Bobski shouting my name. And it just came once, it was just a Chandra, like through the night. And it was enough to make me sit up, I bolted up, couldn't see anything, couldn't find my glasses, couldn't find my headlamp. Total shit show, scrambling around in my tent. The rain had stopped, it was silent, but then there was that incongruous <laughs> staccato issuing of my name from down by the river. Their greatest fear had materialized. A flash flood was ripping down the river. Finally, like, clamor out of my tent, total disaster. I got my glasses on, and I see that the river had risen so much that it was brown and laden with material. Clumps of giant river cane, entire cottonwood trees, and you could just smell the mud. You could smell the earth that was suspended in that water and moving downstream. It felt heavy. I ran down to the river and I see the kitchen being swallowed by the river and Sierra and Bobski like struggling to hold on to these canoes. Bobski was almost up to his chest. And I remember thinking I should be wearing different footwear and I should be wearing a life jacket because we were scrambling to keep hold of these canoes, pull as much gear out of them as we could and huck it up onto the shore so as not to lose all that gear. And I felt suddenly that we in our hubris had made some mistakes um, and that that feeling kind of I had a hard time shaking that as the water rose higher and higher the boats which were tied to willow trees bucked and wavered in the raging torrent the guides attempted to salvage whatever gear they could from the boats while also trying to wrestle the canoes ashore yet they had been thrust so quickly into the situation that they hadn't had time to check on their clients yet as best they knew, they were still asleep and on dry land. I was squatted down holding onto this canoe and I was just shaking. I was working so hard to hold onto this boat and it just felt futile. And I remember one of the participants came up behind me and, and she said, Chandra, there's water running through my tent. And it just sent chills down my spine. And I realized instantly, if there was water moving through the tent city, that that meant that the river was overtaking our, our entire camp. So I asked her as calmly as I could, you know, could you please go wake everybody up? Paco and Karima remember waking up to someone frantically shouting names, and they quickly got out of their tents to see what was going on. 
Karima estimates that water levels had risen well more than 10 feet. We see that the water levels are slowly coming up. And so, you know, like a bunch of us get up and we start moving ice chests and people's tents. They eventually moved all of the tents up to that that high bench. And then the river began to run through where all those tents were. We were then sort of surrounded by water. For Chandra and the other guides, the water began to overpower them, and two of their canoes were ripped from their grasp, disappearing down the muddy river into the inky black night. With those canoes went the last of their food and the last of the group's drinking water. Luckily, they were able to salvage their remaining five canoes and move much of the rest of their gear onto higher ground. They gathered the clients at a high point and ensured everyone was accounted for. The group was shaken and cold, but alive and uninjured. At this point, you know, it might have been two in the morning. I'm not sure. We had assembled everybody up on that high ground. And, um, you know, Sierra and I were talking about most important things. And obviously the fact that we had no more drinking water was a really big deal. And we knew that as soon as morning came, it was going to be a really significant problem. And the fact that we were down two canoes was problematic. But we kind of, we gathered ourselves. We decided that, you know, it was important to get everyone back to sleep so they didn't work up any thirst (laughs) and didn't come asking for water. And we decided to to go back to bed and everyone was safe. Everyone was on high ground. We knew that this, you know, up on that bench, that was not a place the river was going to reach. There was no evidence that the river had ever been up there. It was obviously the the bank that defined the corridor. And so Bobski and I decided to go sleep by the by the boats to see, you know, if the water rose again, we'd be there to pull them up onto higher ground. And we had stuck a stick in the mud as like a an improvised gauge. And according to our stick, the water was dropping. And we could tell too, you know, the the dropping water was leaving a, a slick of mud. So we felt really good about things. We just thought we're going to deal with this in the morning. And right now we're just going to get everyone back to sleep. The crew crawled back into their tents, hoping to get a few more hours of sleep before the sunrise came. For their last few miles of paddling in the morning, they'd now need to figure out how to squeeze four extra people into their five remaining canoes. But for the most part, things felt manageable. I felt like we had we had just been through something and we were going to have some good stories you know, in the morning, we had some kinks to work out in the morning, figuring out how we get out of there. But um, it felt really good. Once again, it felt really good to lay down. So I just basically made a nest in the grass. Bobski made a nest just upstream of me in the grass. And and I remember telling him, I'm glad you're here. And he said to me, I'm glad you're here too, Chandra. And it felt like a sweet moment. You're just two old friends out there having an adventure. And that time I left my glasses and my headlamp on my face and I drifted off. And then I, it wasn't much longer, maybe 20 minutes later, I, I felt wet. 
And it did not take me very long to realize that the grass that I was sleeping on was drenched. And then I, I, I switched on my headlamp and saw that Bobski and I were now in the middle of the river. And that channel where the tent city had been was now the river. And Bobski and I were on these two little grassy islands and the canoes were still tied to the willows. And I think it was probably about a hundred yards between us and the camp. Paco and Karima woke up for a second time that night to the sounds of a guide yelling for help, and they quickly feared someone had been washed downstream. As they crawled out of their tent, they saw Chandra and Bobski stuck in the middle of the deluge. The water was higher than ever. Under normal conditions, a fast flow for this stretch of river is considered around 3,000 CFS. Yet river gauge records show that during the second pulse of flash flood they were waking up to, the river was surging to nearly 18,000 CFS. And just downstream of Chandra and Bobski, the water was rushing through thick bushes and trees. Creating the worst strainer that you can picture. It was quite scary. I put on my PFD headlamp and my glasses were on my face. I shouted at Bobski, you know, wake up, we're on islands. And he asked, all right, how much time do we have? And I said, we have no time. And our islands were shrinking and I could watch, I could watch our little land masses getting smaller and smaller. So then we started shouting. Paco and Karima watched from the far shoreline in horror. With Bobski and Chandra were the five remaining canoes. All were quivering wildly in the rising current. Chandra remembers Bobski turning to her and saying something along the lines of, All right, listen, here's what we'll do. I'm going to paddle one across and I'll tow some behind me. You paddle a second canoe and tow the remaining ones and we'll get them all across the river. What Bobski suggested was a gutsy maneuver. They would each be single-handedly paddling 100 yards across a river at flood stage, perpendicular to the river's flow in the middle of the night with strainers and rapids below them. And I was just like, no, we're not. I cannot do it. And I knew with all my heart, I cannot do that. And I'm just looking downstream at the mesquites, thinking that's where I'm going to die. Bobski, openly frustrated at Chandra's refusal, tried to compromise and said something along the lines of, Okay, listen, we'll ditch three of the canoes, let them wash downstream for all I care, but you and I each paddle a canoe across so we at least save two of them. And at this point, he's just bargaining with me, trying to get as many canoes over to dry land as, as possible. The water has risen up to our ankles. You know, the grass is disappearing. And I, I said, I, I can't do it. That was hard on, that was a hard moment because I know that disappointed him. But I also, I know my limits and I couldn't have done it. So then he said, okay. Get in this canoe, get in the front. We'll go over together. Chandra and Bobski were committing to abandoning four out of their five remaining canoes. And after a complete trip of teaching their clients how to paddle canoes together, Chandra and Bobski would now be put to the ultimate test in their last remaining boat, needing to demonstrate their mastery of tandem canoeing in the pitch dark, going across a raging torrent of water in a do or die maneuver. 
for those on the shore, the tension of watching them desperately try to save themselves grew to a fever pitch. One of the scariest things I've ever seen, because as we're looking out across the river, we're watching other people's boats flat from upriver come down. And we're like, holy shit, there are people in the canyons that we were just in. Meanwhile, Chandra and Bobski got into a canoe with Chandra in the front and Bobski in the back. You know, we threw some stuff in the canoe, but mostly our stuff, our sleeping bags, my sleeping bag went downstream. And at this point, I'm hollering at Paco and Sierra, like, be ready to catch us. And then it's sort of a sort of a blur. Somehow, by magic, we ended up on the other side of the river. Paco and Sierra caught us. Chandra looked back to where they had both just been standing to see that their islands had been totally submerged under the water, leaving the canoes they had ditched quivering and bobbing wildly in the raging current. I think there's a general sense of defeat emanating from Bobski. I think that it was really hard for him to leave those canoes out in the middle of the river. I think in his mind, we could have saved them. So it was... It was kind of broke my heart to watch him watching those canoes. Um, and I realized that I had left the sat phone in Sierra's rig bag on my island and it was now underwater. That was a low point maybe in my career, you know, maybe in my, my life. They were now left with one single canoe. All of their food was gone. All of their water was gone. Chandra guessed it was three or four in the morning. Within a few hours, temperatures would skyrocket and the group would have few options for how to keep all of them hydrated and how to get the crew downriver through the heat to safety. Sierra and I kind of stood there shivering, talking about what we needed to do. And it was clear that we needed help. It was a pretty brutal real realization that we were going to need an evacuation and we were going to need provisions. We needed water. Everyone's walking around like zombies and they're starting to get thirsty. And we're just like, no, no, you're not thirsty. Go back to bed. We probably could do without food, but we definitely were going to need water in, in just a, a couple of hours when the sun came up. It was just at this moment that Paco gingerly walked up to Chandra and Bobski and said, I think I know who owns this land. And he's so calm and collected. And he says, you know, I've got this cell phone number for the people who I think own this land. And sure as shit. Yeah, so I had been to Big Bend a few months earlier to write an, a magazine article about um, the binational way in which land was administered on, on both sides of, of the Rio Grande. You know, there's these like old kind of like wildlife biologists who they, you know, they, they lived on a ranch out there and I had their phone number because I was setting up an interview with them. The person who owned or at least managed the land was a Texan woman named Bonnie McKinney. Luckily, despite losing the satellite phone, the group still had a Garmin inReach, which allowed for them to send text messages out. I laid down, texted Bonnie and said, you know, this is... This is where we are. Also sent Nate, my sweetheart, Bonnie's number and said, hey, if there's any chance you can get a hold of this woman, I think we're on her land. 
As it happened, Bonnie was up in the pre-dawn light, smoking cigarettes and doing the crossword when the text message came in. She responded quickly. And she said, yeah, we know where you are and we will bring you water. And they had all these old Jeeps and these big pickup trucks with safari racks on the top. And sure enough, as she promised, a whole flat of like Walmart style bottled water shows up with a bunch of snacks. And, you know, she rolls down her her window. She's riding shotgun in this in, in this big truck. And she says, in this amazing Texan drawl, she goes, the cavalry has arrived. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. As the group packed their bags and loaded their one remaining canoe onto the trucks, the water continued to rise, and the canoes that were still stuck in the middle part of the river continued to bob mournfully, digging into the water at a sharper and sharper angle as the water got deeper. As they packed up their gear, Paco looked up river to see. A park ranger came floating down, which is crazy to me that somebody was just floating down on this like surging river. He traveled the course of the river that took us like six days. I think they did it in like several hours or something. Like the speed at which they, the park rangers were able to come down the river is like unfathomable to me. We loaded up all the people and we all got into this motorcade of safari vehicles and they drove us to our takeout and it was incredible. We've got these great photos of these exhausted riders perched up on these, you know, safari rigs traversing this West Texan landscape after a pretty rough night and they had smiles on their faces, right? The novelty of what was happening was not lost on us, and, and it was, was a pretty spectacular way to get out of there. But as far as rescues go, that was, that was a good one. The group spent one last night together on firm land, wrapping up their workshop, drinking whiskey, and recounting what they had just lived through. There was a lot to unpack in the themes of the trip. For instance, whatever policies had led to the record low water levels and the algae green color of the current, Upstream damming for energy, siphoning the river for irrigation, nitrogen runoff from the fertilizer and farming. Mother Nature had, in one fell swoop, completely rewritten the entire topography of the landscape. The once slow, turquoise, tepid water was now a fast-moving, cold, deep, primal surge of muddy brown flash flood. Here's how Karima described it. The river, it's this living thing. Like, it it's the whole watershed. It is the rain that is falling all ambiently around us because it's all collecting in the same place. And that sublime entity of like what a river is and can be, I don't know if someone could have described it to me and imprinted that knowledge the way that watching it happen has. The morning after their final writer's circle, the group disbanded. Chandra got in her truck and started her long drive home to Montana. Paco and Karima headed west to Arizona. Bobski and Sierra went back to their homes in Texas, and the clients made their ways back to the far-flung corners from where they had originated. It's worth noting in the aftermath of the flood that everyone in the canyon, including outside groups, was accounted for, and no lives were lost. Miraculously, in the weeks that followed, almost all of their gear was recovered, 
Two canoes were found 150 miles downriver, laden with river cane, which had held their gear in place. Bobski took numerous trips down the river and found his throw bag on the side of the river tangled up in roots. Two coolers were recovered by the National Park Service in a lake, and local boaters found the dry bag with the satellite phone in perfect working condition downstream in another canyon. Furthermore, in post-trip analysis, Chandra says she and the guides stand by their decision-making with few regrets. They had monitored water levels closely for hours after it began to rain. They moved their group and equipment to higher ground. Bobski declined to participate in this podcast, but Chandra related to me in an email from him that his biggest lesson was to never sleep in an area that could, under almost any imaginable circumstance, become the river. Chandra added her own takeaway, saying, quote, We learned that our own history as river people, our own experiences and anecdotal experiences of our colleagues and friends, does not actually prepare us for what is possible, end quote. What the group was forced to survive that night was a truly historic and unexpected flash flood. Certainly not the biggest flood the river has ever seen, but one of notable historic proportions. The difference is that, you know, when you've managed a river to this extent, you don't expect this type of flooding. So it's surprising. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to spend so much of your life outside and in particular on rivers. And we work so hard to curate these adventures, these experiences that get people closer to natural forces. And we, we work hard to make those adventures safe and comfortable as, as, as much as is reasonable. And it's, it's important to remember that we are small, ephemeral, terrestrial animals, and we are always at the mercy of those big elemental forces. We lost a lot that night, But between all that we lost in gear and maybe ego, we got to, we were, we were, we were afforded this chance to see and witness and feel the power of a river that is so heavily controlled and appropriated that it runs completely dry for for a lot of the year now. And there's a really precious lesson in, in the reminder that We can give our efforts at taming big rivers all the energy that we want. We can throw all the money and infrastructure and and manpower and materials at diverting and damming rivers. But the fact remains that that water will rise and that when it does, we'll be reminded of how small and futile our efforts really are. Here's Karima. We know that these borders aren't these permanent things, you know, that are going to last forever. We know that they won't. And yet all of the conditioning of the state, it, you know, tries to make it look otherwise through even just its architecture and through rechanneling waterways. And the human folly of, of thinking that a river was just kind of this object that could reinforce that fallacy. But that instead it's this thing that reorders our world and the expectations that we put on it. Here's Chandra. If you think about it from space, right? Think about watching that from space. You've got this clearly defined, like thin green line of border and then the river floods and washes it all away. And the, the border is suddenly quite fluid and 
quite blurry. And there's something pretty, pretty precious about that. Thank you, Chandra, Karima, and Paco for sharing your story. I'm glad you guys all made it out safe. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto, Wildness, Grant Harold, Coop, Jupiter, Dizzy Dizzy Moonshake, Major Babe, Baleen, Padelm, and Brennan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists, Track Club, or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, DerekBeckDiaries.com. This episode was produced, written, and edited by Andrew Burton, with additional production help from Evan Phillips, Lauren Delaney Miller, Ashley Langholz, and Becca Cahal. Illustration by Walker Cahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz, and you've been listening to the Dirtback Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.